You are listening to the Missions History Podcast, brought to you by the International Mission Board. On this episode, hosts David Brady and Scott Peterson are joined by veteran missionary and IMB leader, Lori McDaniel. Listen in as they discuss the life and ministry of the Southern Baptist Convention's beloved Lottie Moon. They'll discuss her story, the lasting effect of her work, and her role in mobilizing the entire denomination to engage in missions. Welcome to this edition of Missions History Podcast. MHP is a ministry of the International Mission Board, and today we are excited to have as our guest Lori McDaniel, and I'm one of the hosts, David Brady, and my co-host is Scott Peterson. Scott, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, David. What about you? I am doing well, and I am very excited about this. This, of course, is going to be uh, a very special episode talking about the life and ministry of Lottie Moon, and this is... um, obviously uh, going to be um, very important as far as our week of prayer and our Christmas offering. And so thank you for tuning into this episode. Uh, To help us learn about Lottie Moon's life, we have a special guest, and that's Lori McDaniel. And Lori knows a lot about Lottie and has been studying Lottie for many years. And um, we're just delighted to be able to talk to her about Lottie's life. But Lori, before you tell us about Lottie, just tell us a little bit about Lori. Sure, absolutely. Well, first of all, thank you for letting me participate in this. I'm excited about you guys doing this uh, podcast on history of missions. Uh, So I'm a mom of three, uh, three adult children. As of two days ago, we are officially empty nesters. So we are beginning that new journey. Uh, My husband and I served overseas in Zambia, Africa for four years uh, with the IMB as missionaries. And when we returned, we came back and planted a church in Arkansas where he's currently Uh, the pastor. So I wear the pastor's wife hat at times. And I also work at the IMB in mobilization. So I have the fun job of really getting to uh, stir up the church and kind of light fires under people uh, Mm -hmm. to get them excited to play their part in missions. Oh, that's excellent. Well, tell us, how did you first learn about Lottie Moon? (laughs) That's a a really (laughs) great question. So I grew up in a Southern Baptist church, and you cannot grow up in a Southern Baptist church in the decades that I grew up in anyway and not hear about Lottie Moon. So I was a GA, although I will confess this little information. I did GAs for about five years, but I never earned a badge once. So, what? No. I know, it's terrible. I don't, does that, I don't know if that means I flunked GAs. Can you do that? Is I, your current I, life I don't know. Like I was never a GA. Are you trying I, I, to make I up? For, yes. Yeah. Oh, I, yeah. my goodness. So I just said that publicly. I, I have to confess. So but you have to work for the IMB just to make I up do, for that. I do, to make yeah. up for that, like uh, get a jewel gotcha. in my crown or yeah. something extra. I'm not sure. But, you know, I, I'm thankful that my parents, you know, kept me in that. I can remember uh, having a little plastic rice bowl that we were given that we would collect money for the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. But I will also say this, as people would say, hey, give to Lottie Moon. I literally, I thought, is she going to come and take the money? You know, right. and so what is this going to look like? So I grew up uh, knowing at least somewhat about Lottie Moon, um, but it really wasn't until probably the last five or six years that I got extremely interested in her life. Uh, and just really began consuming her letters, mm-hmm. uh, talking to people about her, learning what I could. Uh, but I think you'll find it interesting. If you were to just draw a line in the sand, even maybe among Southern Baptists today, you will have some people who will move to one side that you know can quote her, who revere her. Right. You'll have others on the other side who, you know, ashamedly may be saying, I don't know who she is, you know, whispering, right. who's that? And you have some that straddle maybe the line in between that all they know is that she made cookies for, you know, poor little Chinese kids or something. So a couple of things. What is it of all the 
potential missionary candidates. Why did what is it about her that drew you in? You know, working for the IMB, it's kind of an asset that you know who she is Good and you're point. able to, you know, talk about her. And I think what it was is, is as I began to dive into her life story, there was so much about her personality, um, so much about her life that I could actually identify with. Whereas we get kind of these soundbite versions of who she is, or maybe we just say give to this offering, but we don't really know who this woman is that this offering is named after. And so we kind of have this soundbite, uh, sweet version of who Lottie is. But when you really break apart her story, mm -hmm. uh, her history, her upbringing, her opposition to the church, uh, what she did in China, uh, the hardships that she went through, uh, even kind of her tenacious life, the way I like to define it, um, it really, uh, to me, was a story that was contagious and just really drew me yeah. in to learn more. So tell us a little bit about Lottie's childhood, her background, and about her conversion. Right. So, you know, she's born in 1840. And so she's born just even a few years before the Civil War breaks out. So she grows up uh, with that history. Her mother is a very uh, religious woman, Baptist. Her father, from what we understand, not so much. Like her mother was more the leadership uh, in her family as far as uh, religion was concerned. Uh, one thing I do love about Lottie in her childhood is that uh, she was kind of a prankster. Uh, she was involved in, you know, just childhood antics. And we even see that play out in a few stories on the mission field later on in her life. Um, but she was uh, uh, this daring type child, um, ambitious, rebellious. Um, while her mother was a leader in the church, Lottie opposed anything religious. Mm. Um, and so it wasn't actually until uh, she was 18 years of age that she had been invited to uh, listen to uh, Dr. Brodus, mm -hmm. um, you know, who's a well-known evangelist at the time. Uh, and she didn't want to go. Her friends are, you know, encouraging her to go, praying for her to go. And when she shows up, she, it says, she even says that she went to mock them. Wow. But instead, you know, the Holy Spirit uh, grips her heart and she ends up all night praying in her room. And that became... Uh, her conversion experience at 18. And from that point forward, I believe that we can see that that Lottie begins to uh, take the Great Commission personally. Mm -hmm. uh, she begins to give to missions. Mm -hmm. uh, a couple of her friends who had been missionaries in China, she begins to support them wow. um, overseas. And at the same time, while she is involved in this, Lottie is also using uh, her education. So mm -hmm. something that's really unique about her is that during that time period, She's one of the most educated women in mm -hmm. the South. Right. Uh, she had mastered five languages. Um, and uh, I, I, I even believe she had uh, what we would call today an entrepreneurial spirit. So mm -hmm. she at one point moves to Georgia to start a girls' school. Mm. And it's while she's there uh, at this girls' school that she uh, decides that she's going to go overseas uh, and live in China as a missionary. So she kind of takes that uh, startup mentality, that mm -hmm. entrepreneurship even, uh, her love for God and what he's doing, uh, missions that is now uh, becoming alive within her, and she relocates to China. What what influenced her to make that decision? I don't think it was like one moment in time, although we, we can look back and say, okay, it was on this date. Uh, when Pastor Hayden preached this message and Lottie said, you know, okay, I'm giving my life to go to China. But there were things prior to that, you know, so whether it was, 
you know, her, her mom uh, teaching her. Um, I've, I've even heard that her mom would read her stories, you know, about Judson. Uh, her sister had gone over one year prior. to, So she's getting letters from her sister saying, you know, why are you remaining there when your skills could be used so well over here in China? Or whether it's her friends that I just mentioned. So I think it was a culmination of all of these things that God was putting into her life and seeding this idea of missions. And so when Dr. Hayden preaches, you know, the sermon and she feels called, it's only, she, she even mentioned, she says, I knew that God was calling me to China. So 1873, she goes out. Right. Um, there, her sister had gone the year before. 1872. Sister had gone the year before. Her sister went with another single missionary named Lula Wilden. So Lula was appointed first and then Edmonia, but they could travel together to China. So of the of that batch, Lottie's the third. But the reason, you know, you look at it, you look at it and you say, well, why didn't we have single missionaries? And, and Scott can tell you the story. We did have a single missionary. And that was in 1850. We had already tried this. You're talking about Harriet Baker. I'm talking about Harriet Baker. Baker. Yeah, which we, we considered an epic failure. We consider an epic failure. And maybe not, but it, it wasn't, but it was considered very that. famous writer later. Uh, yes, yeah, a very famous writer. And, uh, you know, it's kind of it was a sad situation that we let kind of that situation shut it down for so many years. But the thing about Lottie that is so important is she shows people by her endurance and by her uh, fruitfulness that that single women missionaries can do some things that first of all, men can't do, and even married women don't have quite the freedom to do. Right. So she really opens a door. And, you know, you go on to say today, if you took away all of the single women missionaries and all of the efforts of other women that have served in Southern Baptist missions, we would have, we would be really diminished. Well, right. There's a, a, you know, an unexplored piece here, which David, we've already talked about, and that's Sally. In fact, she really is a single missionary. She's she a widow. Now. She's yeah, a widow. She's a she doesn't go right. out, but she's there for years raising a child. And maybe that helps influence the decision to or reverse that decision on single women missionaries. I don't know. I don't I think that's an unexplored topic. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think so, too. And I think it's one that is definitely worth exploring I mean, because it wasn't just in even Baptist denomination that now there's this influx of, you know, single women missionaries. It was throughout all denominations. So Ralph Winters even made a comment about there was during that time period, you know, the or, or the late 19th century, there was this burst of energy of, of women going to the mission field, single women going to the mission field. And so I think it's definitely a topic that is worth uh, exploring in depth. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that their contributions are just um, beyond our ability to calculate. And I think we all need to think about it and look back on it. And um, so when you, when she gets to North China, um, tell us a little bit about what her early ministry looked like there. Yeah, so her early ministry looked like, you know, what was called at that time women's work for women. And uh, so basically the expectation was that a woman could come in and a woman could teach children and a woman could teach women. And so when she arrives, you know, to teach school girls at that time was really difficult. So to teach school boys, uh, that was uh, more easily done because girls were, were uh, kept at home. Um, but it was really her heart to begin uh, to start a school for girls, just like she had done in the state. So she's taking her experience, she's taking her skills, she's taking her passion, 
And she really wants to insert it here um, in a gospel-informed way, but insert that into a culture where girls can be raised up and um, educated. So she's doing that. Um, she's also teaching women. So uh, she begins to uh, go out into some surrounding areas, not too far inland into China, not yet anyway, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but about the first two, 10 years, she's hanging around uh, this main area, traveling out to just some cities with uh, Martha Crawford, uh, Eddie, her sister, Sally Holm. Mm-hmm. They're going out into some areas and, and uh, really doing evangelism. Mm-hmm. And so they're going in, they're teaching women, they may be uh, teaching them hymns, or they may be teaching them, you know, mm-hmm. verses or catechisms, mm-hmm. even which seems strange mm-hmm. to us to say mm-hmm. uh, in our day and time. But the women were incredibly receptive to mm-hmm. these women as they would go out, so much so that as the women would gather around them, the men would kind of hang out, you know, over in the shadows, mm-hmm. uh, listening to what these strange foreign women, you know, who were coming had to say, you know, but, but as they would go out, uh, Lottie, would, they would often, Lottie and, and the others would often get called, you know, foreign devil. Right. Um, as, as they would go out, you, this was a strange thing to them. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's even strange, not only the message that they had, but they, the Chinese people were really uncertain because we have to remember that when missionaries came over on ships, and they came off with all of their cargo. Also, opium came off the ships right, right. Um, at the same time. So, you know, who who were these foreigners and what was their message and what was it mm-hmm. that they had and why did they dress the way that they dress and mm-hmm. why is their skin that color and are you married and are you single and, you know, are you a man or are you a woman? Right. Uh, different things that really... And let's not, let's not forget that they had fought two wars against the British where the British was forcing them to accept the importation of opium. So right. there's that association with Westerners and, you know, gun po- gunboat diplomacy, if mm-hmm. you will. Mm-hmm. Scott, you know, there's something, an article that you wrote about um, Sally Holmes being the mentor of Lottie Moon. And, you know, I think sometimes we think about Lottie Moon, like she went to the mission field, already this super saint like missionary. Like she had it all together. Like she had it to all do. together. But I think it's so important to realize even Lottie Moon needed a mentor. And so, Scott, just to give us a word about, about that and, and your article and, and the thesis that you explored in that article. Sure. Well, as you, as you read Lottie's letters as well as Sally's letters, uh, Sally and Martha, would, Martha Crawford would go out and were pioneering this rural ministry, this rural work that, Lori, you talked about. And there are, it really sounds as if from Lottie's own pen that Sally drug her along behind, not kicking and screaming necessarily, but that she really said, okay, I'm, we're going to this village tomorrow. I'll be at your house or your room at this point in time, and we're going to go. Um, certainly that's not the the vocabulary she used, but we really get that sense of it so much so that Sally would keep going and keep going and keep going like the energizer bunny. And Lottie would say at the end of a day, that's enough. You know, I gotta, I gotta take a break, but we do see from Lottie's life, Lottie catches that spirit and she, she does the same thing in the sense of that. She just keeps going and going and, um, and really passionate about the ministry and to me, that really speaks to how experienced missionaries need to be there and take younger missionaries when they come to the field right. under their word. wing, train yeah. them up and assist them, come alongside of them and show them how to do it. That's discipleship. Right. I would completely agree. You don't just show up on the field 
uh, knowing the context, knowing the culture, knowing the language, and even knowing how to, I mean, you can't import American Christianity, right, into another place. Like, you need someone uh, to come alongside you, um, if possible, and kind of show you some mission strategy uh, to encourage you along the way. And they were inventing strategy, too. And they didn't always agree on that, (laughs) to which Lottie will later on when we see she and T.P. Crawford will, you know, have uh, some heavy conversations and conflict letters that she writes back, you know, to Tupper at the time concerning mission strategy and what's taking place. And so uh, just because she was a single woman and, you know, maybe the new kid on the block, uh, after she kind of learns the ropes a little bit, uh, she takes that uh, tenacious, strong spirit that's within her, and she's ready to uh, blaze some trails with some new thinking and some new strategy concerning missions. Including being around and involved in schoolwork, teaching school. She, there were some new things she wanted to do and not to be bound by having to be in a class, even though she had that background that she brought to the field. You mentioned Tupper and her. she had a strong relationship with Tupper. But she also, a lot of her correspondence was written to his uh, the following president, as we would call them now, the Foreign Mission Board, Robert Willingham. And that relationship wasn't quite as strong initially. Uh, maybe we'll hold that for a little bit later thought, but she did have a good relationship with Tupper. She did. And even in some of their letters, they would uh, joke back and forth, you know, uh, somewhat. She would even write some kind of phonetic, crazy type letters. I don't know if she was just bored right. or whatever it was. But, but yeah, they seemed to have uh, a good relationship where she was very transparent, it seems. Uh, often her letters, she didn't mince her words. You, you didn't have to guess what Lottie was really thinking. And so she pinned this often uh, back to Tupper, you know, president of the board at the time. Um, but I, I think that that really helped to set uh, and fuel some thinking and a different way of uh, thinking maybe towards furlough, uh, rest for missionaries, uh, pay, uh, single women not or single women being able to live on their own, her being able to go inland into China. And so she really pressed forward against some of those uh, cultural norms, even mission norms that have been established by the board. Um, in order really to fulfill what she felt like was her calling, not just to remain where she was to teaching in schools, but to make her way inland into China as well. So tell us about, as her ministry developed, how she starts to move into the center of the Shandong province. Yeah, so she she really kind of wrestles with this at first, uh, whether or not she should leave the school that she has been leading and move. But God has so gripped her heart for uh, those that wanted to hear Christ. And even when she would visit out into places like Ping Tu, and uh, she, she would write about the people there being different than the people in the city. And, and she would even like say their teachableness mm. um, is mm-hmm. even more so than right. those in the city. And so she had this huge heart for evangelism. Now, there, I think there was one time, and I'm, I'm going to push back a little bit on something that you said, and that mm-hmm. you said that she was really careful not to preach to men. And I think we see that about like 99% of the things, mm-hmm. but I know that there's one time where she says, look, there were men that were there and I couldn't help but, you know, share the gospel Mm -hmm. to them. And so I think she was very respectful. Mm -hmm. And yet at the same time, she was not going to to, uh, let go or dissolve any opportunity that she had, you know, to share uh, the gospel with people. Um, One of my favorite stories uh, as she goes out into this area and she's teaching women, okay, out in. Uh, the Pingtu area, which, by the way, is, you know, at hundreds of miles away from the city center. 
um, takes hours in order to be able to get there by mule. Uh, but she's there. She's in a small village. She's teaching women. And there's this man. We don't know his name. Um, but he's kind of uh, sheepishly hiding behind the women, listening to everything that Lottie has to say. And it ends up that they meet face to face and Lottie gives him a New Testament. Well, he can't read. Mm. And so he's illiterate. So he doesn't really know what to do with this. But he comes back often as he can as, as Lottie is there teaching the women and he kind of hides out in the back. And pretty soon he takes this New Testament and he gives it to a man named Lee Shoting. Mm. Yeah, tell and, us about him. Yeah, yeah, so he gives it because Lee Shoting is a, Con a Confucius scholar right. who can read. And when he first gets hold of this New Testament, you know, he, he's, he's not very happy about this. But as he begins to read it, uh, what he is reading begins to stir his own soul. Right. So much soul so that when Lottie comes back, he wants to hear more of what she has to say. Well, just like you were saying, you know, out of respect, she... Um, asked Crawford to come. She asked another missionary uh, whose name uh, Pruitt, who was a missionary also at that time now in the field, uh, to come. And they lead him uh, to Christ. He ends up becoming uh, a pastor, uh, so much so that he baptizes. The, the numbers that we have are like 10,000 Chinese believers. Wow. Um, but he attributes back. This is Li Shoting that is Correct. baptizing 10,000 believers. That's right. Okay. So, you know, imagine that. So you've got, you know, missionaries that we're sending thinking mm -hmm. missionaries are doing all the work. Mm -hmm. But think about that when you go into a place and you are truly making a disciple to which he, he, he looks back and he says that Lottie was his teacher. Mm -hmm. uh, you are making disciples mm -hmm. who are making disciples. Yeah. And this is the way that it should be when missionaries go in that, that the nationals uh, who now become believers are doing the work among their own people. So uh, let's just talk about, she was a single missionary and we know from hearing she struggled with loneliness. So kind of walk through that. Yeah, so you can only imagine, right? I mean, she's on the field, and especially when she moves out uh, into inland China, that she is there, and she's not necessarily speaking English to people. She's not eating uh, her normal American you know, food, her comforts, and so forth. And so she does struggle with loneliness. Now, is it, is it somewhat because of this maybe a melancholy-type state in her family? You know, we don't know. Um, but I would say this, that any missionary living on the foreign field struggles with a type of loneliness uh, that's really hard to explain and comprehend uh, and, and articulate back here to those in you know our local church. You're, you're going to uh, churches, and while you may even know the language, it's not your heart language that you're worshiping in. Mm -hmm. um, it's not the same uh, worldview. And while you're there and you want to be all things to all people so that you might win some, it's also not necessarily your homeland and mm -hmm. your home heart language and your home comforts and so forth. And so she does struggle with loneliness, especially toward the end mm -hmm. of her time in China. And she had been there nearly 40 years mm -hmm. uh, by the time she leaves, which at that time period was a long stint of time. Mm -hmm. uh, she had gone back to the States for a couple of furloughs, but that wasn't normal for missionary life. So, Lori, let me ask you a question. Was there ever any romantic interest in Lottie's life? So that's always the fun topic of conversation. So, like, was there, is there, was there not? So there was this guy named Crawford Toy uh, who um, everybody surmises that, you know, there was a relationship between them. They did exchange letters. 
he was also, uh, when she was at uh, the Female Institute, he was also uh, one of her language tutors there. And so there was this kind of relationship that they had. He ends up, she goes overseas. He ends up actually uh, going into Europe uh, to study some more theology. And when he comes back and they actually have a time where they meet back up and they're exchanging uh, communication back and forth, uh, that he's, he has shifted. He has shifted in his views in theology, uh, specifically his views on the Old Testament and uh, how you know, Christology being attached to certain passages. Uh, Darwinism uh, came into play. And so they, if there was something there that was maybe leading toward marriage, it was cut off. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was even one time uh, that Lottie was asked a question uh, specifically about, you know, her love life and her response to that was, yes, but God had first claim on my life. And since the two conflicted, there could be no question about the results. Wow. That's, that's incredible. And you know that you mentioned Crawford Toy. He was actually appointed as a Southern Baptist missionary himself. He was one of three young men appointed to open our work in Japan. And they were appointed in uh, 1860. Um, one of the other young men got married first. Scott, to your point about they wanted only married people going out. So that person was the first to go. They never arrived. Their ship sunk on the way. But Crawford Toy uh, had this appointment. And after the Civil War, he went into theology. Actually, the first, not only a professor at Southern Seminary, first professor fired by Southern <laughs> Seminary. Well, and I think there's even in kind of this whole love story uh, saga, I think there was even, you know, there's even a narrative that perhaps that they were going to get together and go be missionaries together in Japan mm-hmm. um, before all of that separated. Interesting. And Crawford Toy, of course, he goes to Harvard and he uh, actually dies in the Unitarian Church, which right. is kind He's of a cra- crazy, uh, crazy story. So, um, let's just talk a little bit about the sort of the final years. We also know that Lottie so fully identified. She kind of adopted Chinese dress. She, uh, there were a lot of famines that periodically would sweep over Shandong province. So tell us a little bit about some of those final years of her life leading up to 1912. Her adopting Chinese dress is fascinating. She's, she's not the first one you know, to do so and to even attempt to contextualize into the culture in dress. Even some of her colleagues, you know, attempt to do that. It just didn't go over so well when they were uh, doing it back in in the main city. But when she uh, took upon the Chinese dress out in the more remote areas, uh, it was very welcomed by the Chinese. And so she found this to be, you know, a great method uh, in contextualizing in in her later years. Uh, at one point uh, during her later years, it's, it's late 1800s, uh, the box, it's on the edge of the Boxer Rebellion, which we know during that time, uh, the Boxer Rebellion really was um, aimed at uh, killing Christians. Uh, so, you know, tens of thousands of Chinese believers uh, were martyred because of their faith. Uh, hundreds of missionaries, men, women, and children were killed. Um, it was just before that uh, that um, some of Lottie's uh, believers in the church um, were under persecution. And uh, 13 had been arrested and they reached out to Lottie. And so Lottie, this time she doesn't, you know, she's not just dressing up to be, you know, like look like a Chinese. She's now dressing up to look like a Chinese official. And she puts on uh, the Chinese, almost like royal 
clothing and so forth, gets on her, she can see she's being carried out, you know, to this place so that when she arrives, she's able to go in and to speak with those who had, you know, just been arrested. So in some sense, uh, I think we talked about earlier kind of these antics uh, that she had as a child. I think like some of that honoriness, you know, kind of carries with her uh, into her later years uh, in life. One of, one of her colleagues even writes about a time uh, later on um, in her life, she's walking down, she's been in China years now, right? And she's walking down a path and a um, Chinese soldier is riding on horseback toward her and the path is incredibly narrow. So it's almost like this game of chicken, but she's been in China long enough that she's not going right. to give way. And he's a soldier and he's not going to give away. And so she takes her umbrella. And as the soldier is approaching, she pops it open toward the horse, forcing the horse to, to jump the ditch that was, you know, next to her. And so, um, you know, even, even then in her later life, huh. she is still enjoying living in China loving the Chinese people, which it took some time for her to do to come to actually love the Chinese people. There's something pretty significant about Lottie and being in the field at the time of the Boxer Rebellion when a lot of other missionaries were evacuating, were pulling out. Now, she left during the Boxer Rebellion she period. Went right. She went to Japan. But the reason that she went to Japan at that time, because there's going to be a later revolution where they tell all the missionaries to get out. Um, and she doesn't. She stays this time. But she leaves really for two reasons. One, she was needing the rust. And two, she feared uh, that if she stayed, she actually put the Chinese believers in danger. Right. So there were times that she would um, not stay out in the remote village, but she would leave during times of persecution because it put the Chinese believers uh, in harm's way. But remind me, didn't she come back in? Wasn't she one of the first ones she to was. hit the ground there? She was. So it was, she was in Japan just for about a year. Um, and the Boxer Rebellion didn't last too long, but she was one of the first ones uh, to, to come back into China at that time. So what I love about that is that she wasn't deterred. You know, she didn't look at the situation and assess the circumstance and decide it's too dangerous for me to go back in. Uh, she had a, a reason and she was compelled still to get the gospel to that place. She was really a courageous woman. Incredibly. We, we don't use that term to describe her very often. We use, we talk about her height. We talk about her orneriness, maybe about her impact on giving and even things like furlough and her concern. But she was a courageous woman. I'd, I mean, I think there's more adjectives that we can continue on with her, you know, being courageous. I, I like to use the word that she was tenacious. Uh, she was somewhat daring. I even call her sometimes. I think she was a, had, a, you know, a little bit of a rebel at heart that she wasn't just going to take uh, something handed to her, but she was going to push against the status quo in order to see move, things move forward. But push against status quo where it was important to do so and not against uh, where God's word spoke, as right. in the illustration with Crawford Toy. And perhaps she shut down that relationship because of the, the theological departure that he made from God's word. Well, so, so one example of that where she kind of pushes against the status quo or maybe just the mission norm that had been set up was uh, there would be meetings that they would have, so mission meetings, but women were not invited to these right. meetings. Yet she's she has this incredible inland mission strategy, right? 
And she's seeing fruit from this, but yet she can't speak in to any mission strategy. And so she pushes against it so much so that she she writes a letter back to Tupper and really pretty much threatens to quit. That either I get to be involved in influencing mission strategy that's taking place and that I'm involved in in China, or really I need to find another place to do work. And doesn't she talk about having a say, a voice there because she feels like the married wives are represented by their husbands, but the single missionaries don't have that same voice. That's right. So if, if you had a husband, it seemed like maybe you were represented, but if you were married, then you were kind of left to fight for yourself. Were there any themes in terms of the gospel that you see that were, seemed to either been very important to her or that she thought really resonated with the Chinese that you see her using? I think that's a great question. I mean, the very first thing that comes to my mind is is a theme that the gospel uh, was personal. And so when she, I don't think it was long after she's in China that she writes back in one of her letters, and I wish I could quote it verbatim, but she says uh, something like that, that your conversion or the object of your conversion isn't for your own salvation, uh, but so that you may be co-laborers with the one who saved you in converting the entire world. And so to her, the gospel was personal to her Mm -hmm. salvation, but it also meant that now she was a co-laborer. She was a co-worker in uh, participating with God in converting the entire world, which meant that the gospel had to go out, you know, to many others. When she was in in Pingtu and she saw a lot of response and and Li Xiaoting um, started leading a lot of people to Christ, did Lottie stay there and say, wow, this is where I want to plant my life and everybody loves me here. You know, I'm just going to let, you know, everybody keep uh, building up the the Lottie legacy. What what does Lottie do? Because I always think this is su- surprising. Yeah. So it's, it's definitely not the Lottie Moon show. Yeah. Um, you know, <laughs> and she is training up nationals. She is training other believers, but she's going out uh, to other surrounding villages. I I can't remember how many it is that she covers uh, in like 30 days. It's a hundred and some odd villages that she goes out uh, sharing the gospel. So she's kind of on this itinerant Mm -hmm. uh, evangelism um, plan in some sense, uh, going out to various villages uh, sharing the gospel. Yeah. And, you know, she goes back and moves back to Tung Chow. Right. And says, you know what, you guys have have got got this. And now I'm, it's not about me. And, and I love that about her, that she really wanted to pass it on. And she didn't let them sort of make a, uh, um, you know, center everything around her and her ministry. Right. And when she goes back there, she actually gets more involved back into the whole uh, school situation, educating girls. Uh, there's even, you know, uh, ministry on bind, binding of feet or unbinding yeah. of feet right, unbinding of feet. Chinese yeah. uh, women. And so she's still heavily involved. Uh, even when she goes back into the city. And, you know, she spends a lot of time orienting new missionaries to the field. They'll live with her, particularly women, and she'll be training them. And a lot of them get sick. Right. And where do they go when they get sick? They live at Little Crossroads. And she just has a ministry that uh, we don't think of, but a ministry of compassion and and nursing. Tell us about what happened to Lottie during the, the revolution of 1911 in China. Sure. So, a revolution breaks out in China to overthrow the current dynasty that is in reign there. And it becomes volatile enough that the U.S. consul um, asks all uh, the missionaries, all citizens to leave. And everyone pulls out except Lottie. Uh, Lottie hears that the hospital in Wangxin 
uh, is needing help. And so she makes her way there through uh, gunfire, through explosions and so forth to go to that hospital where she stays for 11 days and helps them to kind of get organized. But one thing that I love about that story is it says that she also just encouraged their souls, you know, as people were coming in injured and some of them losing their life or limb. And so she is really helping, taking her skills and helping to encourage those that are working there and to really bring order uh, to the hospital during this wartime situation. So 11 days later, Dr. Ayers uh, and some of his colleagues make their way um, under gunfire to uh, the hospital uh, to relieve her. And they're surprised when they get there to see really the calmness and how things are being run at this hospital. And they're encouraging her to leave. You know, she's frail. Um, she's not doing well. Uh, and as she's getting ready to leave uh, to make her way back to uh, the port city, um, you know, it says that they sent out word that Miss Moon would be traveling because they knew that there would be threat of gunfire of explosions, that it was going to be a dangerous time. And so word gets sent out to two generals of each opposing uh, side. And when Lottie arrives where on the battlefield where the fighting is taking place, the fighting ceases. And Lottie Moon passes a quiet battlefield. And I can't help but think, because there's a plaque in China still today that says how she loved us, mm -hmm. that even those, maybe, maybe they knew her, maybe they didn't, but maybe they knew of her. Mm -hmm. And they knew that she loved the Chinese people. She had risked her life to stay mm -hmm. back at the hospital mm -hmm. um, where probably many of their soldiers were being cared for. And they stopped the fighting in order to let her pass. When her colleague goes back to the hospital, the same thing doesn't happen. So he goes back to the hospital and he's going back under gunfire. Mm -hmm. And so truly they, the Chinese people, not only did she love them, mm -hmm. but they loved her. Mm. That's a great story. So this is 1911. So she doesn't have a whole lot longer left to live. So kind of tell us as far as the end of her life here on earth. Right. So she's frail. Uh, she's diagnosed. She's, she's not doing well. You know, the doctor's saying that she needs to go back. Uh, she gets on a ship with one of her friends, uh, Mrs. Miller, and uh, they make it to uh, the port of Kobe to Japan. And that is where uh, she passes away on the ship. Uh, her body is cremated and it is sent back to the States. But, you know, all of her belongings uh, were sent back in one small, like, two by three foot trunk, you know, and that's all that she had. Um, also, now let's just talk about it because Lottie dies in 1912, Chris, Christmas Eve, I think, something that's like correct. that. Um, but though dead, Yet speaketh, you know, she is still talking and her legacy lives on and she continues to mobilize and inspire. So talk a little bit about the enduring legacy of Lottie Moon among Southern Baptists. Right. So, you know, we think of Lottie as a missionary because, you know, she was, but she very what very much was also a mobilizer. And so in 1888, when she's still alive. Uh, she shares this idea back with a group of, you know, kind of her circle influ influence, you know, among Baptist women, this idea of rallying women to uh, gather money to send more missionaries. And it, it wasn't necessarily new with her. It was an initiative that other denominations had done and had done well. And I don't think she's necessarily trying to compete with them, but she's looking at the, the needs in front of her, the opportunity 
uh, for more missionaries to be sent. And she's seeing what other denominations are doing. She's saying, why aren't the Baptists doing this? And so she sends this idea back to a group of women and they raise, you know, for the first time, like $3,000 to send out three missionary couples. And from that point on, it just continues that there's a week of prayer that takes place for mission and then a mission offering is collected. So Lottie dies in 1912. And in 1918, uh, it really becomes inaugurated, this whole idea of what we call now the Lottie Moon Christmas Offering, uh, which over the period of the last hundred years uh, has gathered up cooperatively over, you know, uh, billions of dollars to be able to send missionaries out to the field. That So they're sent and they're supported 100% by this offering that Baptist churches uh, cooperate together in raising the funds. Yeah, I think that legacy is incredible. And I don't know if you've heard this story, but sometime, I think it was maybe in the 1930s, there was actually an effort to change the name of the offering. And they were kind of, you know, moving towards, you know, removing her name from it. And the reason that got stopped is this was at a, a, a WMU meeting and the delegates from Texas stood up and the official representative said, if you change that, the women from Texas will not be happy. <laughs> and that shut it down. Well, it was women for Texas. Yeah, I mean, it was what women did you from expect, Texas. Right? <laughs> they shut it down. So Lottie, we thank you, our Texas uh, sisters, for keeping that name alive. That's um, right. You know, the, the thing about it is, is, is today that, that truly there are churches who, who do give to Lottie Moon and they understand that. But we do have churches, uh, new church plants that are up and coming and they're not familiar with Lottie Moon. And so I think it's imperative. I think it's important that we're telling her story so that when we say things like uh, give to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering, what they're hearing is they're not hearing some foreign uh, name or concept. What they're hearing is that the money that I am giving goes directly to send and support missionaries. So when they hear give to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering, they're hearing give to global missions. So Lori, if you're going to leave us with some words of, of wisdom from Lottie, um, give us one of the things that we can take home with us today. Sure. You know, it wasn't long after Lottie arrived on the field that she's looking out and it says that at my door is the very work that I crave. Mm. And so she could open up her door and see multitudes of people that she knew needed Christ. And one of my favorite things that she says that, that I have it written, it's, it's on my desk um, at, my at my home office. It says this, and it's a quote by Lottie. It says um, that there is no greater joy than that of saving souls. Mm. And the reason that that is so important to me is, is while my husband may be a pastor, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. You know, I'm caught up in this whole missions mobilization endeavor. That it's, it's still my responsibility. Mm -hmm. I still have an important task of, you know, converting everyday conversations with everyday people in order to share the gospel with them because there is no greater joy than that of saving souls. Yeah, that's a great that's a great way to conclude this podcast. And, and this is the week of prayer, and we know that uh, this week you'll be praying for uh, our missionaries around the world, praying for new missionaries to be sent out, and of course praying uh, that um, we would give more generously and sacrificially than we've ever given uh, in any year. And so we want to thank Lori for being our guest today on MHP Missions History Podcast. I'm David Brady. 
And I'm Scott Peterson. Till next time, thank you. You have been listening to Missions History Podcast, a production of the International Mission Board. Join hosts David Brady and Scott Peterson each week as they discuss significant people, places, and events from the history of international missions. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes.